0: The first reading this morning is uh, Mark 435 through 40. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drown?' He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, "'Quiet, be still.' Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, "'Why are you so afraid? "'Do you still have no faith?' Second reading is Isaiah forty twenty eight through 31. "'Do you not know? "'Have you not heard? "'The Lord is the everlasting God.'
1: morning. Glad you found us down here. We're at Church of Extremes, the floor-to-ceiling windows and then the basement with the construction lights. So this would be good for a two-week series on heaven and hell we could do. First week upstairs and then this down here, with that nice banging and everything. Um, we're talking about sleep this morning, which, you know, for a certain subset of people in our church is like all you think about. If you have a, a young kid... Um, If an infant or even a a toddler, you just you think about sleep 24/7. You know, how do I get more of it? How do I get my kid to do more of it? There's that that book that um, sold a. You shouldn't talk about this in church, but that sold a lot this year. um, Go the F to sleep. This children's book. They it's uh, not edited out. It's just. And, you know, the parents are desperate to get their kids to sleep. Um, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're, we're talking about sleep from a, a spiritual perspective. And like Jacob said, not necessarily the first lens you look at sleep from often, but it's what we're, we're going to do this morning. Four sections to this morning's message. First, we sleep too little. Second, the price of being tired. Third, the... This basement. It's, we sleep too little. The price of being tired. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm just going to look at these verses and see what I thought I was going to say about them. <laughs> <laughs> the price of being tired. We, we sleep too little. The price of being tired. Um, how to get better sleep. Better sleep. And then fourth, can't forget this one, sleep and death. So, we sleep too little, the price of being tired, how to sleep better, and sleep and death. First, we sleep too little. Um, the more common thing that people know that the Bible says, we'll just mention preliminary is, is that the Bible does talk about sleeping too much. So, if you look on your your insert there, uh, passage number one from Proverbs chapter 20, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. It's kind of a scary verse. The Bible does say that, and that's clearly true. You know, If you sleep when you're supposed to be working, then you won't have any food, and that's a bummer. Um, We're not going to talk about that this morning because I don't think that's the message that that this crowd really needs to hear. Uh, This, I mean, this is kind of deeply ingrained in the American psyche. This uh, is, you would talk, this was in some ways what what the United States was founded on, what New England was founded on. This is uh, Max Weber's famous book, The Protestant Worth. Work ethic and the spirit of capitalism this is kind of the engine of american enterprise you would have uh, rhymes that kids would would uh, learn in the early republic about um the here's one nature requires how much sleep are you supposed to get nature requires five custom gives seven laziness takes nine wickedness eleven So it's wicked. It's wicked to sleep for 11 hours. It's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue. And the Bible does talk about that side of it. The Bible does talk about laziness. It's not what we're going to talk about this morning because we already get that part. What we're going to talk about this morning is the flip side of it. And I want to see that. Look at the the next verse, number two on your insert. Because the Bible also condemns the opposite extreme. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves in vain you rise early in vain you stay up late toiling for food to eat for he grants sleep to those he loves and a, and a more literal translation says not, not just toiling for food to eat but it says eating the bread of anxious toil eating the bread of anxious toil so this is talking to a different person you know the first verse is talking to the guy who's, who's sleeping when he should be working and it says well you probably shouldn't do that because you won't have anything to eat and, and that's not going to be any fun this is talking to the person who's anxious and is, is staying up late and getting up early, working, 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 because they're always afraid there's not going to be enough. They're always afraid something bad's going to happen. They're always afraid. They're always trying to be prepared. And the verse says to this person, well, so the, the good thing is you have food. You know, you're not like the first guy. So that's nice. The bad thing is you're so anxious all the time that how much can you really enjoy it? You're eating the bread of anxious toil. The bread that you work so hard for becomes something that, that makes you sick. The bread of anxious toil. In other words, it doesn't taste very good. You to, 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 What you had to do to get it ruins your enjoyment of it. And Now, now we can relate. Because this is the, the position that so many people in the city that never sleeps are in. You've worked so hard to get to where you wanted to be, to meet your goals, to get the apartment you wanted, to get the job you wanted, to be in the neighborhood you wanted, to get your kids into the school that they were supposed to get into. You met all your goals, you did everything you were supposed to do, but it doesn't feel the way you thought it was going to feel. It doesn't. The, you, you can have any food you want, and it doesn't taste the way you thought it was going to taste. Robert Cooley was a professor at Columbia in the 60s and was kind of known for coming up with these witty aphorisms. And, and his line is summary of, of this phenomenon is, when I prayed for success, I forgot to pray for sound sleep and good digestion. And the two don't go together usually. Or, the, you know, the th- you don't get the whole package because if you're work, if this bread of anxious toil, it doesn't taste the way you thought it would taste. We sleep too little. And so you say, well, I mean, is it really that big a deal? You can just, let's say you have to sleep six hours or less for a season, you know, for a year, a couple years, while you're kind of climbing the ladder, while you're getting to where you need to get. Then, once you get there, once you've arrived, so what? It's a few years, then you kind of dial back down, become more relaxed again, and, you know, start sleeping. And if it were only that easy, if it were only that easy, because the problem is once you stop sleeping, once you start working for the bread of anxious toil, it's very, you, you slowly unlearn how to sleep which is why the, the, uh, sleeping pills, the sale of sleeping pills grew 60% from 2000 to 2006. It's why the last decade saw the advent of a $60,000 mattress. It's why people spend hours analyzing the thread count for which sheets they're going to buy. That's why there's a, uh, a place on 57th Street that you can go and pay $12 for a 20-minute nap in this sleeping pod. Because people can't get any sleep. They forgot how to sleep, and they're willing to do anything. They're willing to pay any amount to get that back. And, you know, the, none of those things are bad, obviously. I mean, they're all, they're all fine. There is a certain science to sleep. There's obviously a physical side to sleep. But if, if they were working, then it wouldn't be the case that still more than half of Americans say, when I ask in a survey, they say, I'm, I'm not getting a consistently good night's sleep. I don't get a, a good night's sleep most nights. We sleep too little, and it's not just a matter of of deciding to sleep more. It's a matter of having forgotten how to sleep in the first place. So we're going to talk about what the Bible says about how to sleep better. But before we do that, first, the, the second section of the message is the price of being tired. I want to mention a few things here, two of them more briefly, and then to I want to focus on more. So the first cost of being tired all the time is your emotions are out of control. And this one's really obvious if you have kids. You know, your kids have to sleep. They have to sleep. And if they don't, there's hell to pay. It's just the law of the universe. They're just, they're insane. They're absolutely insane. And, you know, the slightest inconvenience, and they, they, you know, break down sobbing. But the question is, are you really that different? I mean, you might do a little bit better job of hiding it. But of the times that you snap at someone, of the times that you make a big deal out of something little, of the times that you lose your temper, what percentage of those times are you tired? Almost all of them, almost all of them, we're out of control emotionally when we're tired. There's that verse uh, in Ephesians 4 that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is kind of offered to newlyweds often as like sage marriage advice, you know, like if you're in a fight, make sure you resolve it before you go to bed. I don't, personally, I don't think that's what that verse means, Um, just because we've tried that, and it works terribly. It's really, really ineffective, because you just get more and more tired, and the problem just gets bigger and bigger, and you say stupider and stupider things, and you start off so much worse than you were two hours ago. Our rule is actually the opposite. Never talk about anything serious when you're tired, because your emotions are, are out of control. So that's the first price of being tired. The second price is you, you make bad decisions and you're more susceptible to, to give in to temptation. It's obviously the case with little things. You know, you know that when you're more tired, you're more likely to, to eat that high sugar, high fat snack that you would normally be able to resist. And they, they've done all kinds of studies on that now, you know, that sleep helps regulate your, your appetite and your metabolism. But it's not, it's not just the, the little things. It's also bigger, more important things. There's the, the story in the book of Judges, famous story about Samson and Delilah. You know, it got made into a lot of uh, movies in the 1950s because it's a Bible story, but it's got this sexual temptress at the center of it. So it's, you can make this just gay movie, but hey, it's in the Bible. So, you know, nobody can, can get mad at you. But anyway, you know the story. Samson is a, he's a Jewish freedom fighter, and he's freakishly strong, supernaturally strong, and he's seduced by this woman who t- turns out to be an enemy operative. And so she, she, every night when he's getting tired, she tries to get him to tell her, what's the secret of your strength? And he, and he gives her all these fake answers for a while, but then finally he's, he's just exhausted. And he tells her, well, it's my hair. And he falls asleep. They cut off his hair, and he's, he's taken prisoner. Um, the, when Bill Clinton first came into office, um, everybody was kind of amazed that he only had to sleep five hours a night. It was like he's some, some kind of a Superman. But he he sleeps more now. I was reading he said for a couple reasons. One, he said uh, he thinks that sleeping that little contributed to his heart attack. So there's that. But then he also said, he said, uh, every major mistake, every important mistake I've ever made, I made because I was too tired. So So let's just take... <laughs> Let's just take one. Let's just forget all of them but one. All of the time he saved, getting, only sleeping five hours a night, all of the extra work he got done, if you take that and subtract all the time on just the Lewinsky scandal, do you think he came out ahead? No, not even close, not even close. And that's how it always is. Just like with hurry, how it's always counterproductive, that's how it is with being tired and not getting enough sleep. As you make these mistakes, you give in to these temptations, and you end up further back than where you started. Neither of those were the main thing that I wanted to talk about this morning. The main price, the main cost of being tired is that you're unable to engage in spiritually significant activities. You don't have the energy to do it, just like we talked about with hurry last week. You can't connect with God when you're in a hurry, and you can't connect with God when you're tired. If you don't sleep when you're supposed to sleep, you're not going to be awake when you need to be awake. If you don't sleep when you're supposed to sleep, you will fall asleep at some time when you're not supposed to fall asleep. And you know, we could think of all kinds of examples of that, of you know, falling asleep at the wheel or falling asleep in class or falling asleep at work. But because we're talking about how it affects you spiritually, uh, what I want to talk about is falling asleep in church, um, one of the most common of all. So when I first came to this church, there was a guy that would come every week. He doesn't come anymore, so don't be looking around for him. Um, would sit close to the front and every week he would, he would nod off during the sermon, he would fall asleep. And so it wasn't that big a deal. Cause you know, I could only, it was only me that could see him. And so, you know, I, I was a little bit distracting, but nobody else would notice. But then he would, his position would kind of shift as he was sleeping and he would always end up finally with his head straight back. And in that position, he was bound to snort and, People couldn't really see him, you know, in the back. They could just hear it, and they didn't know what it was. And it wasn't this, like, steady drone. It was this, like, kind of punctuated, halting noise in the middle of the sermon, the snoring that would happen every week, and then somebody would eventually wake him up. You know, it was this really fun thing we did each week. Um, So, just reacting, but not surprising. You know, I definitely wasn't surprised that that happened. It's always happened in the 1600s. The pilgrims in New England would have a guy, an elected official actually in the town, that would go around with this long stick, this long brass stick, and it had a a knocker on one end, metal that he would hit the men with, or a feather on the other end that he would tickle the women's faces with to wake people up if they were sleeping in church. Jonathan Edwards, who is the most famous pastor from the, the era, from the early 1700s, we have actually in one of his sermons, he says... He, he pleads with people that persons would avoid laying down their bodies and their seats in the midst of public worship. So it's like, I know you're going to sleep, but just please don't lay down. Just at least stay upright. The um, the, 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 the best falling asleep story in, in church, you actually have to go back even further. We're now on a little bit of a tangent, but that's okay. Um, this is in, in the book of Acts is actually the best one of all. And the the setup is Paul is uh, going to Jerusalem and he knows that when he gets to Jerusalem he's going to be arrested and they're going to execute him. So it's kind of he's doing this one last farewell tour, essentially emotional farewell tour where he's hitting all the churches that he helped to found and give him one last message and, and say his goodbyes. So he's at this church and it's the last night of his visit. Um, so it's the last time he's ever going to see him. Last time he's ever going to preach to him, and it's getting close to the end. So it's it's one of the last sermons he's ever going to preach. Period. So he, he starts preaching to him on this last night, and he just goes on and on and on and on. He's just he's everything he's ever wanted to say. He's saying it. Every story he's ever told, he's telling it again, and it gets later and later and later. And there's this guy named Eutychus who we only know because of this story, who's sitting in a window, and they're up on the third story. And he starts to fall asleep, and the window's open because it's hot, so he falls asleep. He falls out of the window in the middle of the sermon, and he dies. It was high enough that he dies from the fall. So I just want to stop right there and make sure you get this. This guy died because Paul preached too long, <laughs> which I, you may feel like you're dying when I preach too long, but no one has actually died. He actually died because the sermon went too long. So it's, you know, the Bible. So Paul goes down and throws his body over him, and the guy comes back to life. You know, he raises him back to life, so it's a happy ending, no harm, no foul. And then they actually go up, and he uh, continues the sermon until dawn, (laughs) which is great, my favorite part. Um, But anyway, all that to say, uh, the point before I got carried away was people fall asleep in church. They've always fall asleep, fallen asleep asleep in church. They've fallen asleep in church for, for 2,000 years. Um, and it's just one example, a more dramatic example of this problem of to, to pay attention to spiritual things, you have to be awake. It takes It takes energy. It takes focus to listen to a sermon, for instance. I know that. I get that. I get that you have to work hard to listen to a sermon every week. I get it that it's a a two-way street because there's no, there's no camera angle cuts. There's no commercials. There's no breaks. You have to, you have to, and it's, and it's sometimes it's heavy stuff. You know, every once in a while you get a, a story about a guy falling out of a window, but for the most part, it's these, these serious topics. And when you're thinking about God, it takes energy and way more important than church, way more important than falling asleep in church is these, these spiritual activities that we engage in on our own reading scripture and praying. It's been my experience that that people say they don't have enough time to read Scripture and to pray, and that's really not the problem at all. The problem at all is that when they do have the time, and they do, they don't have enough energy. They don't have enough energy to read the Scriptures and to pray, because these are really demanding activities to read something that's really kind of... Deep And to, to have a conversation that's serious takes a lot of energy, it, no matter what it is. And this is the deepest text there is. This is the most serious conversation there is. It takes a lot of energy. And so when people try to do these things, they just fall asleep. And that's you know this goes back to last week when we were talking about a hurry. One of the reasons we hurry all the time, one of the reasons we're so overstimulated all the time, all the, the emails and all the inputs is because that's one way to stay awake. If you're sleep-deprived, if you haven't gotten enough sleep, you can stay awake by just always having this constant input, this constant drum of activity. But if if you're sleep-deprived and you try to sit down and be still, like we talked about last week, I would guess that for most of the people in our church, if you tried to do that, if you tried to do what we talked about last week and just be still for 30 minutes, for an hour, you just fall asleep. You fall asleep because you're overtired. This heartbreaking episode in the Gospels is when Jesus, on the night before he goes to the cross, asks the, his inner circle to come with him to pray with him in the garden. And it's you get the sense that he's not doing it just kind of as a um, teaching moment for them. He's not doing it just because he wants them to, to learn from the experience. He's doing it Uh, Because he actually needs them, because he's feeling weak, because he's feeling disconnected from his father, because he wants that companionship. He wants to lean on them as spiritual brothers. It's this this mind-boggling thing, God in weakness needing human beings. And so the three guys go, and he says, well, pray with me, and they all fall asleep. It's heartbreaking. God needs them, and they fall asleep. And how many times has that happened to us? How many times has that happened to you where God wants to meet with you and you're asleep? Where God wants to say something to you and you're asleep? Where God wants you to do something and you're asleep? It's this this greatest cost of being overtired, not getting enough sleep, is that you can't focus on, on spiritual things. So the third section, moving on, is how do we sleep better? And, you know, putting aside all the kind of scientific side of it and the physical side of it, what about the spiritual side? What can we do spiritually to sleep better? Three things the Bible talks about, three in this, in this section as well. Um, the first one, just briefly, is to treat sleep as a gift. If you go back to the, the, first, uh, the second text we looked at, the one we looked at just a second ago from Psalm 127, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. He, he grants sleep to those he loves. He gives sleep to those he loves. It's a gift. It's a gift that God wants to give to you. And you have to accept it as a gift. You have to accept it with gratitude, which means a couple of things. It means, one, not feeling guilty about it, you know, not feeling like, oh, I shouldn't need to sleep, or oh, I, don't, I don't want to. It's a gift. He wants to give it to you. You're supposed to receive it. It's ungrateful to keep it at arm's length, or to try to get less of it. He, he's giving it to you. He made you to need it, and to try to get less of it than you need is foolish. So, so that's the first thing, is to, to accept it gratefully, and to not feel guilty, and then with that, to get as much as you need, whatever that is for you. Einstein slept 10 hours a night and didn't feel embarrassed about it, and we have you know, the, the theory of relativity now as his gift to us because of that. So whatever it is that you need, get that. But then the, the third thing would be uh, don't take more than you need. You know, That's what we talked about at the beginning, um, the, the part about not sleeping too much. And the, really the only way you can know how much you need And you don't need me to tell you this, but is is to go to bed and to get up at the same time every day. That's how you can kind of figure out what that magic number is for you. And that takes discipline, of course. I mean, nobody wants to to do that. It feels like you're still in school or something. But um, it's part of figuring out how much you need, and that's part of accepting a gift gratefully. Because if you take more than you need, or if you take, if sometimes you say, "Oh, I don't want it," and then sometimes you take more than he's offering, then you're not really treating it like a gift. You're kind of just taking it for granted. Um, which, is, which is a different mentality. So that's the first thing, treat it as a gift. The second thing is treat it as an act. Treat sleeping as an act of, of humility and an act of worship. So, why does God do this? I mean, why does he write sleep into the story? He doesn't have to make human beings as creatures that sleep. Why does he make us need sleep? One reason is just it's, it's one more way to underscore the difference between us and him. We need sleep, he doesn't. We're the creature, Here's, he's the creator. The next uh, verse on your insert there, number three, from Psalm 121. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then from Isaiah 40, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God doesn't slumber or sleep. God does not grow tired or weary. And when we do, when we do need to sleep, it's this humbling thing to remind us we're the creature, he is the creator. It's, it's, so, it's so beautiful and stunning to me that this corporate executive, this high-powered corporate executive, has to lay down and become limp like an infant and be weak and blind and totally vulnerable one time every day. And you can't, you can't avoid it. So it's either, it's humiliating if you fight it. If you try to fight it, it's just humiliating. But if you embrace it, it can be humbling, humbling in a good way. And it can even be an act of worship if you, if you undertake it in the right mentality. You know, when I, I've mentioned this before. Every parent loves to go in, and I love to go in and watch... Our girls sleeping at night, you know, to sneak into their rooms after they're asleep. Just watch them laying there. Just watch them breathing. Just watch them resting. Just watch them having given up control. Just watch them trusting us to keep them safe. Just watching them lay there brings me pleasure, brings me joy, brings me fulfillment. God's the same way. God loves to watch you sleep. He loves to watch you trust him like that. But you have to do it with the right attitude of your heart. You have to do it willingly. Humbly, as this, and then if you do it like that, it can become this really profound act of worship. So, the first thing is to receive it as a gift, the second thing is to treat it as an act of, of humility and worship, and then the third thing is to treat it as an act of trust and surrender. You, you might think, Well, I'd love to do what you're talking about, but the problem is I can't fall asleep. You know, I lie down and my mind just races and I can't actually fall asleep, so that's why I have to. You know watch TV before I go to bed always or or always have a drink before I go to bed or take a sleeping pill or just stay up really, really late until i 'm exhausted because otherwise i 'll just lay there and i can 't stop worrying i can 't stop thinking about all these different things we We said last week that we 're going to try to look to Jesus each week as an example in this series on slowing down and the, the only time we see him sleeping in the Gospels is this um, kind of dramatic uh, example we we talked about it a few months ago after the, the storm, but it's when he's in the boat during the storm with the disciples and he's sleeping while the storm is going on. So when we talked about before, we talked about from the disciples' perspective, you know, this, them watching him sleep and how that affected them. But what I want to do this morning is look at his perspective, Jesus' perspective. How is he asleep in the middle of the storm? How is he sound asleep when there's all this going on around him? And the answer is very straightforward. Jesus is able to sleep like a baby because he trusts his father, because he knows his father is going to take care of the situation. So he's not there trying to control everything. Even though he's Jesus, he's not thinking, oh, you know, I probably better stay up and help with the boat. Oh, I probably, what if we run into a storm? He just trusts. He trusts God. He trusts God to take care of him, and so he he sleeps soundly. John Piper is this uh, pastor, was this pastor in in uh, Minneapolis, he actually been he's been a pastor for thirty years. He just retired this month, um, and he he talks about this story of Jesus in the boat and what it meant to him at a particular time in his life. So I want to read this to you. This this is could be a little weird for some of you, but for others of you it could be helpful. So I wanna I want to share it anyway. Um, he he talks about how he went through this time of not being able to get to sleep, and he tried everything, um, and finally the only thing that worked for him was to to bring this this story, to bring this image before his mind every week as he was laying there. And he says, "I, I would imagine myself on a boat in a rough sea, and the crew was working with frenzy to keep the bow into the wind and secure all the cargo. As I climbed down into the small hold of the ship, there was Jesus asleep on a cot. There was no tension in his face, and his head rocked back and forth with the waves. I walked over and shook his shoulder. Jesus, I can't sleep. Please help me. He got up slowly, moved to the end of the cot, and sat down. He motioned me to lie down and put my head in his lap. Then with his hand on my shoulder, he said, I'll take care of you tonight, and don't worry. I'll be sure you're ready for tomorrow. So again might not work for all of you, but for some of you, that might be just the thing you need to trust, to surrender as you fall asleep. Because if you don't, then the worry will keep you awake. If you don't, and, and you know, even if you are asleep, then you wake up and your mind's still spinning. You're still worrying. You have to trust and you have to surrender to God to be able to sleep soundly. So those are the, the three spiritual things you can do to sleep better and um, to incorporate sleep into your life as a part of, of slowing down. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about as we close, and this is just a little bit different, um, is this, this idea of sleep and death. Um, there's an African proverb, sleep is the friend of death. And a lot of Western writers have said the same thing. Schopenhauer, the, the famous uh, German philosopher, said every day is like a, a mini life. You know, every morning, every time you wake up, it's like a birth. And every time you go to sleep, it's like Death. And in that sense, sleep is kind of good practice for death because the same God that you have to trust when you lay down, when you let everything go, when everything goes dark, is the same God that you're going to ultimately have to trust when you, when you leave this world, when you die, um, which, which means that for people who haven't made peace with death, sleep is hard. I mean, there's nothing that, nothing that can keep you awake at night like that thought of, what if my soul is in danger? You know, what if I, what if I don't have peace with God? Nothing cuts into sleep like that. That's why the, you know, we used to pray with children, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You have to have made peace with death before you can really, truly sleep soundly. So how do you do that? For a Christian, it's easy. Uh, what the, what the Scripture says for a Christian is that, Death is nothing more than sleep. You sleep soundly. You sleep soundly even though you know you're going to die because you know that when you die, it's nothing more than sleep. Uh, Jesus uses this phrasing in the Gospels several times. He talks about, you know, this little girl has died, and uh, he comes and says, oh, she's just sleeping. And everybody laughs at him and says, what are you talking about? And he raises her from the the dead. And uh, same thing with Lazarus. He goes to Lazarus. He's been in the grave four days already, and he says he's just sleeping. And he raises him from the dead. And a funny thing happens once Jesus is then raised from the dead and once everybody figures out, okay, this resurrection isn't like a fluky thing. It's going to become a normative thing. Then the Christians then from that point on adopt that language to talk about Christian death in general. So every time somebody who's in Christ dies, who's a believer in Christ dies, they they use this phrase, sleep, they fell asleep. You see it all through the New Testament. You see it a lot in in Paul's letters. So-and-so fell asleep, so-and-so fell asleep. But And I think we kind of just pass over it because we think it's like a, a euphemism, you know, just an, a nicer way to say kind of a thing that nobody wants to think about. But it's not that. It's not a euphemism. It's actually a, a specific theological statement because you, what you have to do is look at the places where they don't say that, the places where the phrase fell asleep is not used with respect to death. So, for instance, it's never used... Um, when talking about an unbeliever, somebody who still rejects God, the phrase, they fell asleep, is never used. It's always just, they die. There's just a cold finality to their death. And more importantly, it's not used of the death of Christ. Even though Christ raises from the dead, even though Christ comes back to life three days later, Scripture never says, Christ fell asleep. It never softens what happens to Christ at the end of his life. Why is that? Because what, what makes death death. What makes death awful, what make, makes death final and unbearable is this, this condemnation, this judgment of your life, and this separation from, from God. And that is exactly what Christ experienced. He experienced that death. He experienced the death of the unbeliever. He experienced the death of the person that rejects God. He died with sin on his shoulders, not his own sin, but the sin of you and me, the sin of everybody. He dies with that on his shoulders. He experiences death in its most concentrated, most final form. It's not falling asleep for Christ. It's death. It's real death. And then, like we talked about on Christmas Eve, he goes to hell. He goes to hell, and in what's a few earthly days for us, experiences an eternity of suffering. He really died. He experienced the worst that death has to offer so that we don't have to so that for someone who is in Christ, it already happened. You didn't experience it, you didn't feel it, but it happened to you when it happened to him. You already went through that, and so then all that's left, all that's left is this falling asleep. Your peace with God has already been made. If you look at uh, verse number 7, the last verse on your insert from Romans 5, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Paul talking about exactly what we were just talking about. So because you have that peace with God, then you sleep with peace. Because you know that all that awaits is just a falling asleep and then arising again at the resurrection, you sleep with peace, not fearing death, not fearing death because it's already happened for you. It's already in the past. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That you're gracious to us. We thank you that you love us like a father. We thank you that you give to us like children. We thank you for this gift of sleep. You know that we want to pretend that we're in control and that we're in charge and that we have power on our own and that we can do it by ourselves and that we don't need these things that you give us. You know that we vacillate between rejecting this gift of sleep on the one hand and then taking too much of it on the other, going back and forth between these extremes. God, I ask this morning that you would help us to come to you as children and just receive this gift of sleep as a way of humbling ourselves before you, as a way of worshiping you, as a way of trusting you, as a way of surrendering to you. Thank you. Thank you for caring for us in this way. And thank you most of all, for Christ's death, which means that the death that's to come for us isn't a death at all, but just falling asleep. It's in your name we pray. Amen.